so my name is Dustin. Uh, I'll be opening God's word for you this morning. Um, a little bit about myself that you haven't already heard. I'm technically a stay-at-home dad, although I think for a time there, a lot of dads were stay-at-home. Um, before that, I was a teacher um, at a public elementary school. Um, I live with my, my wife, Beth, two kids, Ainsley and Charlie. They're 11 and 9, respectively. I have a dog, like 100 cats. Um, I'm, a, I'm a lay elder at South Baptist Church in Sio, Oregon, which is one of the in one of the counties that I think your state was trying to absorb into, to, into the collective. Um, like it's like less than a thousand people, if that gives you some sense. It's just a wasteland, nobody there. I, I lead the worship and youth and sort of play utility at my church, um, including I, I fill the pulpit when our pastor's gone. Uh, Zach and I, as we mentioned, we know each other from Convergence. We've gotten to know each other. I'd say, you know, we're friends, technically speaking, so that's good. Um, which is nice of you. Um, I should probably mention I don't have like a, a seminary degree. I don't know Hebrew or Greek. I'm not super familiar with any Mesopotamian creation mythologies. What I do bring to the table is a deep desire to see God's people, uh, God's word understood and applied and to see God's people conformed more and more to the image of Christ. I mean, at the end of the day, you can set all that aside and know I'm just a boy standing in front of a church, asking you to love Jesus, all right? So let's pray, and then we can get on with it. Father, I just, um, standing here, um, coming before you, uh, handling your word, and that is humbling, and it is a little scary, and I want to take it seriously. And my desire is to see your church grow, to see you glorified, and I pray that Whatever comes out of my mouth here would accomplish that. Um, just walk with us. Uh, send your spirit to move in our hearts. And, uh, you know, may you bless this, uh, this time this morning. We thank you and praise you for who you are and for what you're doing. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, three stories. One light, one medium, one heavy. First story. In July, I turned 37. I know. It's one of those ages that like, nobody really cares about. It's a prime number, but like, as a milestone, it sort of stands as an opportunity to reflect on how things are going so far. In some ways, God has been kind to me. I've got all my faculties, I mean, as far as I know. I have my family. The experience of pushing 40 is, has been a benefit to me in many areas. My body, on the other hand, is starting to show some wear and tear. One of the biggest wake-up calls was when the lockdown first hit and we were setting cameras up to stream the service online at our church. And I was standing at the pulpit and I was turned around looking up at the screen, which was showing what the camera looking down from the balcony was seeing. And you've already seen it because I sat in the front seat and the floor slopes up, right? It's the first time in recent history I'd gotten a good look at the back of my own head, okay? And it was like that footage of deforestation in Brazil they show in documentaries where everything's just cut down to the bare earth and vultures are circling around like wisps of smoke rising up. I mean, just like I realized like soon my hair was going to be like business in the front, going out of business in the back. <laughs> in waking up every morning, I feel like the night before I must have like received a beating that focused exclusively on my joints and sinuses. When I know for a fact, I just took a walk and sat on the couch. I get weird pains in my hands, in my teeth, in what's left of my hair. And I'm at an age where I start to wonder whether any of those things are going to be the thing that puts me in the hospital, which in this day and age, I do not want to do. It's become increasingly clear to me that though I'm technically a young man, I am day by day becoming a less young man. I can only assume, based on conversations with my parents and other people older than I am, that this process will only irreversibly, immutably, inevitably worsen. Second story. In the aftermath of my daughter's birth, I remember sitting in a cloud of birth hormones and new life emanating from my wife, who clutched Ainsley to herself as the team of nurses cleaned up the room and put away their instruments and all that. A daughter was pink and blotchy, but she was perfect wrapped up and resting after the work of being born. She's beautiful, my wife said, examining tiny fingers. Yeah, I said. 
I can't believe she's here. Yeah. Why does my throat hurt so bad? I said, you don't remember? And she said, remember what? Now, normally my wife is a quiet person, okay? In, in social settings, I do most of the talking. You may have picked up on that. But that day, I saw a side of her I'd never seen before or since. I remember she went into transition, which is sort of the beginning of the home stretch, so to speak. Something about this stage leaves the mother feeling exhausted, and frequently she'll say something like, I can't do this. And Beth was no exception to that. But shortly thereafter, the baby started coming in earnest, and I watched my wife, who often attends whole meetings without uttering a word, bear down and scream from her chest like some kind of Amazon as she battled that child out of her body with a level of ferocity and volume that honestly frightened me a little bit. It looked like it hurt, is my point. Third story. Sorry, it's the dark one. Eight years ago, on August 10th, Beth got a call that her father, who had been experiencing some health challenges, was in the hospital in critical condition. Best parents live in Washington, at least a four-hour drive from us, so all we could really do was wait to hear. Not long after that, the phone rang again. And I watched my wife's face as she received the news that her father had suffered a pulmonary embolism, which is a, a blood clot that went to his lung and obstructed blood flow to his heart and ultimately ended his life. He was 61. I remember Beth just walking from room to room and out into the yard, just inconsolable, restless in that way you can be when you're trying to get out from under pain that's too much for you. No matter where she was, she couldn't find a place to stand. Or she wasn't still the daughter of a father who she would never see again, never hug again, never talk to again, who would never hear our son's first words or attend our daughter's graduation. There's this denial that sets in in a time like this where a part of you insists, this can't be right, and it can't be, can it? How can it be that one moment this person exists, a father, a husband, a man who scrupulously organizes his tools, who enthusiastically shook my hand when I asked him to be my father-in-law, who lives to take his family out to a nice place in town, and in the next moment it's just, what, not there? It's senseless. It's stupid. It feels so heartless and arbitrary. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and you've come with some variant on this philosophy. Maybe you've heard church people talking about how God is good, and he made everything, how he has it all under control. I've got a plan, right? And yet, you look around and reasonably, I think, wonder if God is in charge of the whole world. Why does so much of it seem to be such a horror show? Why does the system feel like it's broken, like there's something missing? Do you feel some sense of how things should be and yet feel keenly the discrepancy with what is? Do you wonder why death steals away those we love? Why every one of us was born in a violent cascade of pain and blood? Why your back keeps going out every time you sneeze? This morning, we're going to talk about that. Turn with me to Genesis 3, verses 8 through 24. Now, we've already heard from it once this morning, but I want to do it again just to have the words kind of in my mouth and... uh, uh, Yeah, so I'll give you a second. I understand you have Q Bibles, or I think it's on the screen, or I don't know, you've got Google on your phone, you can just look it up. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Then the man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, it was the serpent. He deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, 
I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children in anguish. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the fields. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing out of skins for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. So last week we watched in horror as mom and dad ruined it for all of us. Adam and Eve disobeyed God, took the fruit God told them not to take, and ate it. This week we're going to examine the consequences of that decision, what is often called the curse. Now, the idea of a curse, for me at least, maybe not you, at least conjures up the idea of like fairy tales, or like a haunted cemetery or something. But biblically, a curse is simply the opposite of blessing. Where blessings benefit, curses cause harm, affliction. One way to think of the curse is merely as the withdrawal of blessing. And by withdrawal of blessing, I mean the withdrawal of God. Or, and let's continue the long tradition of villainizing math, what I'm going to call subtracting God. The fall was the initial detonation, and the fallout has been raining down ever since. The curse touching every aspect of creation over which man was meant to rule and reign. That is to say, all of it. Every command Adam and Eve were given has now become difficult and painful because now God has withdrawn from fellowship with them. Conceptually, this this sort of makes sense, right? You've already heard in Colossians 1.16, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. The design of the world is, is oriented around God, aligned with God, tuned to the harmonies of God. Therefore, a world trying to function apart from God will never work properly. In our passage this morning, I intend to highlight four kind of arenas in which the curse specifically describes how life will be now God has been subtracted from them. First, subtracting God from our knowledge. Second, subtracting God from marriage. Third, subtracting God from work. Fourth, subtracting God from life. Knowledge, marriage, work, life. All right, so here's a question for you. Is it better to know or not to know? The impulse we have to want all the knowledge, to think we are ready for it, runs pretty deep. It presumes we are capable of handling the information, that we are entitled to know everything so we can determine for ourselves what to do about it. It's an issue of control, isn't it? We're programmed by society and by our own natures to treat all of human existence like a mystery novel where we have to know who done it. We want to subtract God from our knowledge. Let's return to the text to see how this works out for Adam and Eve. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. The knowledge of good and evil was too much for Adam and Eve to bear, and their reaction was fear and shame. There's some irony in the first result of knowing good and evil is learning that gaining that knowledge was evil. Eating the fruit was an attempt to pursue the knowledge of good and evil apart from God. Because the knowledge is found apart from God, it's it's enough to know right from wrong, but not enough to empower you to, to do it. Throughout Israel's history, we see it play out exactly like that. After all, what was the law given to Moses but the most comprehensive list of just exactly what was good and what was evil, and yet it was unable to empower them to keep it? In fact, the more they knew, the worse the problem became because every new thing they learned about what God expected became a new way for them to fail God. Paul puts it like this in Romans 3, 19 through 20. 
Now we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Knowing what to do and having the ability to, to do it are two different things, aren't they? On the surface, the answer to the question of whether it's better to know seems obvious, but when you really think about it, when you apply it to life experience, there's a lot more nuance there. I mean, have you ever learned something that was too much for you to know? I think about Corey Tenboom's question from a few weeks ago for her father about sex sin and his reply about the burden such knowledge can be. Or think of the way average German citizens at the time carefully negotiated their own deniability as they watched their neighbors being taken off to camps and saw smoke rising in the distance. They did everything they could not to know. To this day, there are people who deny the Holocaust, in part because to know what happened is to be forced to reckon with what it means about us. For me personally, the weight of unwanted knowledge has haunted me. Uh, a few years back, I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression, and I can't tell you how many times I lay in bed at night, trying in vain to fall asleep, as my mind forced me to rehearse some stupid thing I'd done that day, over and over, reliving the embarrassment and the shame, sort of basting in my own adrenaline, and unable to stop the cycle. The weight of even that knowledge was too much for me. Perhaps the ultimate example of how perversely powerful and destructive knowledge can be is, you know, the internet. On the one hand, you can, you can Google pretty much anything, but on the other hand, you can Google pretty much anything. Start at any website, and you're just like a few clicks away from viewing something on that screen that will scar you for life, that will linger in your memory and slip into your mind's eye when you least want it to. And beyond that is the fact that your newsfeed is just a constant supply of terrible events about which you can do next to nothing. It can be demoralized and look on helplessly as thousands die in a natural disaster or a human-caused disaster overseas, or to just peruse literally every stupid thing every politician has ever said. But in either case, the knowledge that just gets pepper-sprayed in your eyes yields no benefit other than to show you how little control you have. The reason all of it stings so badly is because we were never meant to grow in our knowledge apart from the guidance and order of God. Without the presence of God to guide us and teach us, left to our own devices, we stumble from one tiger pit to the next in a futile attempt to make sense of the world. We've already seen one response hiding in the face of the mortal discomfort we experience when we know something we wish we didn't. In the next few verses, we see Adam and Eve's second attempt to get out from under the shame. Verse 11, then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Then the man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, it was the serpent. He deceived me and I ate. Adam and Eve knew, thanks to the fruit, that they had sinned and significantly that they were sinners. To be known, even by yourself, is to disclose your brokenness and shame. Sometimes you can try to get out from under it by hiding, but here both Adam and Eve tried to get out from under it by shifting the blame. Eve tried to shift the blame to the serpent, and Adam tried to shift the blame as well. But to whom? The woman you gave to be with me. Things were going really well, God, until you put this other person in the mix. It's a, it's a bold strategy, Adam. Our two ancestors made a point of subtracting God from knowledge. Ever since then, we've been doing the same thing with painful and debilitating results. So I mentioned earlier that I used to be a public school teacher. Let me tell you why I'm not one now. See, my principal at the time, and I could just probably stop there, I bet, and that's probably enough. At the start, I think we were friends. Um, we saw a lot of issues in a similar way. I enjoyed hanging out in his office, talking about philosophy, education, spirituality, just life. I mean, yeah, I see now that it's probably a mistake to try to be friends with your boss, but you know, there was a lot of trust between us, so it was definitely fine. I mean, until it wasn't fine. The problem came after a couple of rounds of state testing. Math again. Psh. Turns out my students weren't doing very good on their math test. This, this was pointed out to me by my buddy, the principal, 
And I wanted my students to do well, so I made a solid effort that summer. I went over my curriculum, took it home on my own time, and went over it to make sure I was covering everything. The next year, my math scores were even lower. And in May, my principal came in and told me he'd be placing me on a plan of assistance. If you're not familiar with the term, a plan of assistance is a document you present to a teacher who's deficient in some area of their work. You get a list of areas in which to improve, along with a time frame, at the end of which, if you haven't improved enough, well, you're gone. Along with this came weekly observations, followed by weekly meetings to go over the observations. How were those meetings? I mean, imagine someone compiled an itemized list of every mistake you'd ever made, every error of omission you'd ever committed, okay? Now imagine them stapling that list to a paddle and repeatedly whacking you in the face with it, all right? With the expectation that this is a, a learning and growing process for you. That's pretty much how it was. Interestingly enough, my relationship with my boss uh, actually became stronger than ever. And I came to really trust his guidance in these matters. I'm kidding, of course. I made it to the end of the year, and then only because I cared about my students, and then I resigned. At the heart of it, this is a story of how reframing a relationship in terms of power and enforcement very quickly suffocates the relationship. I mean, imagine how it would go over if I tried this tactic on my wife. Hey, honey, listen, we need to talk about your performance. You're falling short in a couple of key areas, proper shoe storage, dinner prep contributions, general dish maintenance. You have 90 days to improve your performance, or unfortunately, going to have to let you go. I should also inform you you're entitled to union representation at these meetings. Please sign this form indicating you've been apprised of your rights. That's not generally how the marriage relationship is intended to function. And if yours does function that way, come talk to me. We should probably settle that a little bit for you. Um, I would argue that this approach does play out in a lot of marriages, maybe not to that degree, but um, it's a result of subtracting God from marriage. Take a look at verse 16. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children in anguish, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. First of all, we see the woman's unique gift, in some sense part of her identity, the ability to carry a child, which men can't do, now becomes a painful endeavor. You might argue, like, raising the child can be a pain too, but that's not really in view in this text. But to our point that God has been subtracted from marriage, what we see is the beginning of a struggle for power between the husband and wife. That phrase, your desire shall be for your husband. I mean, it could mean like she desires her husband or his position maybe, like the authority there. But in either case, what we see is the husband dominating her. It's a departure from the design God has for marriage, one built on trust and on a mutual pursuit of God, whose glory is the intended end of marriage. When Zach preached on marriage a couple weeks ago, we talked about how marriage is its own little community, one that reflects, in some ways, the community that is God himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Divorced from that significance, no pun intended, marriage becomes just a big pile of needs, wants, desires, and the question of how to get them met by this other person. Trusting your spouse becomes a risk, and dominating them before they can dominate you feels like the safest way to ensure you don't starve or freeze. The obvious downside to this approach, I don't think I need to point out, is that when you boil the sauce down to winners and losers, it will always be relationally expensive. I'll say that again. When you boil it down to winners and losers, it will always be relationally expensive. You can probably manipulate your husband or wife into producing what you want out of them, like they're a vending machine. But the loser in this situation has very little reason to, to initiate kindness and some very compelling reasons to seek vengeance or even to leave the relationship entirely. That's what happens, you see, when we subtract God from marriage. Stripped of its theological significance, marriage is just a series of transactional negotiations. So when I was in college, I worked at my dad's mill, a Ferris Lumber Company, and they made a lot of stuff. But I worked in the veneer plant. And the way veneer works is... You, you peel logs and you steam them and then you put them on this thing and there's these like arms that grab a log and they sort of spin it really fast and they put it on like a blade and just sort of peel it down like an orange and it makes these long sheets of veneer that would go down like a conveyor belt. My job when I was there was to go in this hole underneath the lathe with a wheelbarrow 
because the conveyor belt occasionally would get jammed because the veneer would go sideways and it would get stuck. And so in order to unstick it, they would run the conveyor belt backward. But when you do that, the stuff at this end goes down in a hole and just makes a little pile. And that little pile was my job to go down in there. And I worked with Jerry, who is five foot six, and I'm five foot 11. So it was like the catacombs of the mill just down there. And I keep hitting my head on the way in, make it the wheelbarrow, and you scoop up the pile of stuff. And it usually took about three loads. And we wheel all the way back out, and you hit your head a couple more times. Dump it on the ground, a bobcat comes, scoops it up. It's a whole system. You know, not a great one, but it works if you're five, six. Um, what I quickly learned was Jerry's motto at work, which was, don't kill yourself getting it all. It's just going to be there again tomorrow. And he was right, because every day that the conveyor belt would get jammed, they would run it backwards. And in the morning, I would come in. That was the start of my day. Every time I went in, pile of chips in the, in the hole in the ground. Um, and like, there's, it's a mill. Everything's messy. So when you're working cleanup, it's just constantly the same kind of work. Um, two conclusions I think we can draw from this experience. First of all, in retrospect, I think it really prepared me for the work of parenting. Secondly, uh, I learned just how difficult and futile work can be. It's a lesson Adam obviously learned first. Look with me at verses 17 through 19. And he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the fields. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. Adam discovered what it's like when you subtract God from work. Let's work through these verses a little ourselves. Verse 17. Because you have listened to your wife's voice. Now, there's a phrase that won't get misused, right? Uh, clearly, God isn't talking about all kinds of listening. Right, guys? Right? We, we understand that? Okay. I think a careful read of this verse tells us that Adam's mistake wasn't listening to his wife per se, but in listening to her contradict God. In this sense, we see a connection to our previous point as the sin your spouse will carry into your marriage will put the relationship and your family at risk. And so it's got to be addressed. The way I'm saying this, it sounds like it'll be something that happens once in a while. But in reality, it's not like you tracked some sin into your relationship when you stepped in it out in the yard, right? It's more like you, you fell in a septic tank of it. And now it's like in your eyes and your nose and it's dripping off of you. And now you need a lot of help dealing with that. And the task is made all the harder by the fact she fell in too. And if that's not an absimile from marriage, I don't really know what is. What were we talking about? Oh, work. Okay. Still in verse 17, similarly to Eve's curse, we see a corresponding, though not as bad, pain added to the work Adam is called to. Where before the fall, he was cultivating a garden, picking fruits, turning over prepared soil maybe, putting in a bird bath, naming the platypus. Now he's working out in the field where thorns and thistles are, the work will be harder and more painful. Throughout history, we see the ways work has been just a millstone, grinding people down to nothing. Whether it's child labor and the Industrial Revolution, taking away the innocence, the fingers and arms, even the lives of our sons and daughters. We see it today in the way people are forced to work three and four, hour job, four jobs or more just to pay rent, trapped in an endless cycle of work that leeches the life out of them. We even see it weaponized in institutionalized slavery, not least for Adam and Eve's descendants. I mean, I guess we're all Adam and Eve's descendants, but you know what I mean. See how Egypt, before the exodus, crushed God's people into the ground with every brick and stick of straw they were forced to gather. We see it in the ways some poor college kid has to crawl down a hole, pushing a wheelbarrow to shovel up wood chips that will be replaced by the next day. Worst of all, I might say. <laughs> All of this is a direct result of the way man was separated from God at the fall. In union with God, work makes sense. God sustains everything. We don't work to survive. We work to glorify the one who sustains us. As his image bearers, when we create, when we build, when we craft, order from chaos, our work becomes a visual representation of all the ways God himself works. Outside that design, work is work. It's difficult. 
we can't always see the reward in it. We get hung up on making a bunch of money. We, we work for the weekend. Overtime, it wears us down, makes our joints ache, our muscles strain, our minds go numb with the burden of getting up every morning to go to the office or the field or whatever, because if we don't, our families will starve. They'll cut off the power and the water. They'll repossess our stuff. Soon our materialism owns us. Our stuff owns us. Our employment owns us. And at the end of this section, we see this reminder of the mortality of men, which Zach has gone into before, much better than I could. You came from dust, and now you'll return to it. Literally, to the state you were before God breathed his spirit into you, or to continue in the same terminology, God subtracted from man. So we looked at the, how the curse describes God subtracted from knowledge, marriage, and work. What's left? Here's another story. One time... I sat down to play a game of chess with a friend. We found chairs and a table, sat across from each other, pulled out the rooks and the knights and the bishops, but then I saw, silly me, I forgot to bring the board. Here's another one. My wife and I prepared a delicious meal, put it in dishes, gathered plates and bowls and flatware, only to discover to our dismay we had no table to sit at. Another one, took my kids down to the river. We put on life jackets and inflated the raft that donned our swim trunks and creek sandals and walked down only to find the river had run dry. Another, I gathered my drill and saws and extension cords and attachments and such and went out in the yard to work on a project but had to stop because the power was out. I tried to take a shower but the water was off. I tried to paint you a picture but I had no canvas. I needed to charge my phone but I couldn't find my charging cable. I opened up a school, but there were no teachers, no principal, no curriculum, no classrooms. The desks all had no legs. The doors had no knobs. The lights had no bulbs. The paper had no lines. The pencils had no lead. I tried to live my life on my own terms. I tried to take control of my own destiny. I tried to define for myself who I was, what my life was for, what values I held, what was right and wrong for myself. But it all slid over the side into a subjective pit of vagary and shallow self-actualization. I tried to subtract God from life. Here now we reach the last act of the curse. God has withdrawn from all these different domains of the life that Adam and Eve had, knowledge, marriage, work. And now finally the separation extends to life itself. Apart from God's provision and sustenance, Adam and Eve will no longer live beyond the handful of years they carry with them. Look with me at verses 22 through 24. The Lord God said, Since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Folks, it's it's simple math. If God is the source of all life and you divest yourself from God, you've divested yourself from life. The way we find it in the text always bothered me a bit, what God says there in verse 22. He must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. If, the, if you anthropomorphize God, and to be clear, you know, don't, then it reads like he's, he's feeling threatened by the mighty knowledge of man or something like his ant farm tipped over and he's worried about them getting in the walls. But if you really see things the way scripture frames them, repossessing mortality from Adam and Eve is more of a kindness, a mercy. Sin has been introduced to their lives. Therefore, the more life they have, the greater and more destructive sin's power will have over them and the worse effect sin will have in the lives of their offspring. Like like planting a tree too close to your house, only to find it's crushing the foundations and shoving in the gutters. Think how even your smallest bad habit would grow and develop over the span of eternity. God spares us this outcome by withholding the fruit and expelling these two from the garden. We see a similar sort of dynamic play out, this limiting of man's destructive potential. A few chapters down the line in the story of Babel, but that's a different sermon. I'm sure Zach will enjoy a discussion of the cultural significance of the vitamin used in mortar, or very least what vitamin actually is. Write that down. In any case, we've reached the end of the, yeah, that's question and answer time at the end, guys. Anyway, verse 23, 24. Adam and Eve are sent out from the garden And the way back is guarded by cherubim, who we often see throughout scripture guarding the temple, the place where God dwells and where man cannot go lest he die. That's where the real bitterness is, right? The fact you could could stand outside the garden, you could remember what it was like. 
You could still taste the fruit. You knew what it meant to walk in the golden hour next to God himself, and yet now you can never go back. We can never go back. God's people have been exiles in some form or other pretty much ever since. We can't unlearn the shame of our disobedience and failure, and our every attempt to be good just amounts to so much moralism, filthy rags, the older brother's begrudging obedience to the father in an attempt to to get a goat for him and his friends. We can't just put sunglasses and a hat on our righteousness, sit it at the table, tie strings to its arms and legs, and pretend it's still alive. We can't erase that knowledge that force and manipulation can be useful tools to leverage from your husband or wife what you want. The specter of power dynamics haunts every marriage, some more than others. We can't unsee the futility of work, and we can't go back to land that God has cultivated for us. Those grounds are closed to us for good. We're out in the fields now, and it's hard to make sense of the difficulty of this labor, and we know too well the way work can crush the most vulnerable of us. There's no going back now. But if you've been paying close attention, you may have noticed I skipped a couple verses. Let's look at them now, see what we can make of them. Probably something, right? Verse 20 and 21. Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing out of skins for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. In the midst of a story predominantly characterized by despair, we find these two verses loaded up with hope. In verse 20, though I've been calling her Eve before this, technically she has been the woman or his wife or that woman you gave me, which as terms of endearment go, aren't great. But in verse 20, Adam gives her a name, an act which in the Hebrew tradition carries a weight and a sense of prophecy and meaning we don't really have in our modern American culture. Unless, of course, you name your child after a Greek word, which is the most holy and superior way. And the woman's name is Eve, which translates roughly to life giver or living. Which kind of contradicts the tone of what's happening around this scene, intentionally, I think. Just as death gets its hands around the throat of humanity, the first woman is named life. Then in verse 21, God makes Adam and his wife, Eve, let's call her, garments of skins and clothes them. Now, just prior to this passage, and I think you talked about this last week, we saw Adam and Eve's initial attempt to cover their shame with fig leaves. Now, I don't know if there's some deeper significance to fig leaves. Again, Q&A time, guys. But at the very least, I have a fig tree in my yard and I've seen its leaves, okay? They seem scratchy, and you know, they're leaves, so they don't hold together very well. We don't make our clothes out of them at my house, okay? Among other possible things, I think we can understand the leaves to be a prime example of man's pathetic and ineffectual attempt to cover his own shame, which we are definitely familiar with. God, on the other hand, graciously provides something substantial, effective, abiding, clothing made from skins. Now, I assume these skins weren't removed surgically from the animals, which means God took the life of an animal in order to cover the shame of Adam and Eve, which is interesting. I wonder if that ever comes up again. Spoilers, it does. What this provisional act means for Adam and Eve is that while they've incurred judgment, while there is separation between man and God, God is still active and willing to give grace in the form of covering their shame if only in a temporary way, and also mercy, given that he could simply put them both to death outright at the moment of disobedience. So that's, that's nice, right? Okay, now here's the last bite on our plate, the one I've been saving. Verse 14 and 15. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Keep in mind, I don't think the curse is on snakes per se, but on Satan. It may be that when we encounter a snake out in the woods or something and see it hiding in the dirt, slithering around on the ground, we could probably take that as a physical reminder of a spiritual act of justice, right? But, but judgment wasn't handed down to the gopher snake you saw because as I believe the Pope once said, gopher snakes have no innate sense of morality. It's the devil who is cursed above all things, who will crawl on his belly in humiliation, who will eat the dust, which could mean, if we use our imagination, maybe 
feeding on mortal beings like Adam who were formed from and will return to the dust, flesh, created ones. Or maybe it just implies that his stupid face will be close to the ground for all his days. Given what we know about Lucifer's privileged angelic position before his fall from heaven, the humiliation of this curse can hardly get any worse. But wait, there's more. Verse 15 describes a future enmity between the woman's seed, that is her descendant, and a prediction that her offspring will bruise his head and he shall bruise his heel. Now, I'm no doctor, but I'm pretty sure if we're trading bruises, one of those is worse than the other. In fact, while this is certainly a curse God is calling down on Lucifer, it also has this ring of prophetic promise. Satan, you may have driven this wedge between God and his image bearer, but one day her descendant, singular noun, by the way, will deliver a mortal blow to you. Interesting. I wonder if that comes up again. The end of this passage leaves us outside the garden, separated from God, having walked out on the end of our branch and sawed ourselves off the tree, subtracting the source of all life, joy, love, peace, rest from every aspect of our existence. But the story, Coeur d'Alene, has only just begun. Because while we were doomed to wander the open fields of existence, God was not content to be separated from his image bearers. Building on this precedent of sacrificing an animal's life to cover shame, he called out a people for his own possession and gave them the law built on atoning sacrifice, a holy mirror they could gaze into and understand what was right and wrong, how to honor God, how to love others, how to conform to the life they were designed to have. And he gave instructions for building a place for him to come down and be near us, even if we couldn't look on his face, first in a tabernacle of canvas, then in a more permanent house where every stick of furniture and every sacrificial act was an echo of man's life in the garden. And when his chosen people wandered away from him, and they did do that quite a bit, from him he would discipline them, bringing in other nations to chasten them, giving messages for his prophets to deliver. Calling them back to him like a husband calling to an unfaithful wife. And when they still would not listen or turn back to him, he sent them into exile, twisting in the grip of tyrants and emperors to shepherd them back to him using the rod, not the staff. <clears throat> and then for 400 years, only silence. The river of history flowed over the rocks and God's people were crushed under yet another heel and they waited for him to speak. In this interlude, there were men who gathered up the law like a weapon and bludgeoned the people with it. A tool meant for enlightenment, only bringing more desperation and darkness as God seemed more distant than ever. And into the silence, a baby was born. Jesus. Savior was his name, but he was known by another name. You know, Emmanuel, which means God with us. In a way, he hadn't been since the garden. And in the midst of his mother's birth pains, God the Son inhabited a body that was subject to the same aging process, the same broken world that we are. And he grew to be a man and he began to teach and with authority nobody had ever witnessed before because he didn't just teach the law, he embodied it. He saw God's people battered by the law in the hands of the religious leaders of the day and he stood between them and said, give me that thing, you're using it wrong. That's not what Sabbath is for. That's not what fasting is for. That's not what prayer is for. And he turned to the people and said, come and follow me, my burden is light and my teaching is easy. I remember what work used to be in the garden. And he called disciples to follow him, teaching them and guiding them in the better way to live, apportioning knowledge to them as they were ready so they didn't have to try to steal it off the tree. Crowds of people came to him to be healed. Everywhere he went, Jesus saw the way the curse had invaded creation and he refuted it. Where Adam failed to obey and work within the order God had placed him, Jesus never did a single thing apart from what his father had sent him to do. During his last meal with his disciples, Jesus told them in John 15, as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. And when Jesus found himself in a garden... Tempted like our father Adam to turn away from obedience, to shrink back from the work he was called to do, to take hold of some other way of life apart from the father, he fell to his knees and prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And he allowed himself to be beaten 
and climbed a hill outside of town, bookending a story that began the day of our exile when innocent animals were killed on Adam's and Eve's behalf that continued through the history of God's people, always sacrificing, never fully able to cover their shame. Now God himself submits to this slaughter, covering all our shame forever as he takes it upon himself on the cross. In Romans 5, Paul describes how in the same way that sin entered the world through one man, Adam, so our rescue comes through one man, Jesus. Paul describes this exchange that happens where every curse, every disobedience, every trespass, every death that Adam unleashed on the world is met with all the greater blessing and obedience, grace, mercy, justification, being made right with God. As Christ steps into Adam's place as our representative to God, all it took was his excruciating, shameful, undeserved public execution. The serpent had bruised his heel. So I grew up in the church uh, and there was this woman, B, who was already there when I arrived. I'm the same age as her grandkids. And we did church together for all my formative years. She was joy personified. Do you know people like this? Whenever you were around her, you were just glad to be there. You could relax around B. You could let your guard down. If you were feeling discouraged, anxious, burnout, just talking to her could bring you out of it. B lived into her 90s uh, and died a year or two back. We all felt the loss, we mourned, but we didn't despair. And while we carried our grief for a respectable amount of time, it didn't stay with us forever. Ask me why. Because the serpent may have bruised Christ's heel, but three days later, Christ crushed the serpent's head. Death, that ancient enemy, that slavering beast that consumes everyone we know, everyone we love, that swallows up lives and minds and hearts and reduces them to objects. A monstrous one-way road leading over the horizon and beyond what man can ever reach or see or comprehend. Death was defeated because Christ descended and then returned. The first of us to rise again in the guiding light of, of the resurrection of all followers of Jesus, including my friend B, will see one day. After the resurrection, Jesus gave his disciples some parting instructions we call the Great Commission. Go, make disciples, baptize them. Teach them to obey my commands. And then he ascended to heaven where he's preparing a place for us at the end of it all when the separation between God and man will truly and finally be done away with as we dwell with him forever. It's interesting in light of the way the curse subverts marriage that this final reconciliation with God is portrayed in scripture as a wedding feast with Christ as the bridegroom awaiting his bride. Y'all. In that way, Christ ameliorates the curse's impact on marriage, bringing it into its fullest significance. All right, so let's finish on this question. You know, about a half hour left to go. So what's the appropriate response to this revelation that all the hateful, painful, destructive parts of life are simply God's created order minus God? Do I need to like, continue to describe the ways that sin has impacted the world in a negative way that maybe is kind of bad and we don't like what happens? If you're here this morning or listening online and you wouldn't call yourself a believer or a church person or whatever, let me, let, me, let me talk to you for a minute. So this summer, my kids were walking to the park when they noticed this little bird flitting around. They called me and asked me to come look at it because it didn't look like, like the usual birds we see, right? They're very perceptive that way. It was pastel blue with little lime green touches on the wings and I immediately recognized it for what it was, a parakeet. And obviously, it must have escaped from someone's house because we don't have parakeets in the wild in, in Sile. You might not know that, but now you do. So we set about trying to catch it, right? Maybe just help out the owner. It was sort of tame like they can be, so it let us get close enough to try to grab him. At one point, I actually tossed my hat. I managed to like land it right over him. When I reached under to try to get a hold of him, he like fluttered out and just took off again. And, and we followed him through someone's yard and past like the back of the elementary school, down to the creek, and we, we lost him. Listen, that bird is dead now, okay? I never found it because I don't have to have found it to know it's, it's not alive anymore, okay? The sheer population of outdoor cats in my town, plus we have the highway, plus just a, a lack of food that it would even, we don't have parakeet seed trees, I don't know. Tell me, like, I know, the little, little dude's toast. I am sorry to be the one to tell you. They were never meant to be outdoor pets, okay? To the unbeliever, track with me, okay? I think that the proposition scripture is putting forward is this. 
You were made to be in union with God. You were made to sit under his authority and be provided for by him. Your current state is something like that parakeets, where what you are experiencing is freedom, is actually mortal danger. You might even interpret some church person's attempts to talk to you about God as some kind of threat to your freedom. Maybe you found it offensive how I described you as some kind of pet, and that's fair. But remember how affronted that parakeet must have felt when I dropped my hat on him. Think how instinctually he resisted being contained. How free he must have perceived himself to be as he fluttered out to his doom. Maybe he wasn't in the best position to decide for himself, is all I'm saying. I don't know, maybe this illustration got away from me a little bit. My point is, your rightful place is with God, okay? And if that at all interests you, like, come find me after this. Or better yet, Zach, and, and we'll talk. And I promise I won't compare you to a bird anymore, probably. Okay, church people, keeping in mind... It was quite a thing to get here, and these may well be the only words I ever get to say to you. 19 more pages. We've been spending a lot of time holding up various things and picturing how they would look without God in them. Okay, let's do church. What, you may ask, how, pray tell, could there be a church with God subtracted from it? I suppose a church without God in it would appear on the outside like any other church, but at the heart of it would be a lack of all the things only God can provide. Love, unity, humility, grace, mercy. It might look like a place where everyone sort of does as they like. You might see church-like activities, but if like you flip up the tablecloth underneath, ah, that's a business or a charitable organization or a cult of personality or an online brand. I think it might be most telling in the way leadership is both exercised and responded to. Gulp. If elders and pastors are the ones entrusted by God to lead the church, then the church is called to weigh what they hear from the leadership against the word of God. That's how we proceed in a church centered on God, by clinging to the delivery system he has provided for us to know him and the business he wants us to be about, okay? Now, at my church, uh, we deal with the pressures of having things done a certain way. I, think, I don't know that my church is special that way, but anyway, I only have that much experience on it. Often these pressures come from a place of personal preference or something from American culture or tradition, and take into excess this pressure to change things like that, based not on obedience to scripture, but on what makes us feel good or something, that can really damage the church and compromise our mission. A church built not on the Bible, but on good feelings or artistic expression or social justice or any number of things, I would call church with God subtracted. Not that any of those things are bad, but for goodness sake, don't build a church on them. That's not what church is for. I would also note that such a church might look successful in the eyes of the world. Inside those walls, you're likely to find a very toxic, ineffectual, demoralizing, rebellious climate. That's because all the things that make for a healthy, effective church emanate exclusively from God himself, and they radiate through the church in specific ways. The opening of scripture, prayer, discipleship, fellowship, godly elders submitting to God and rightly handling his word before his congregation. So, so how's it going here, guys? He asked with the confidence of a man who's leaving town tomorrow. <laughs> Would you say that you're doing church with God in it? Actually, scratch that. It's not good enough. He's not like a knickknack you keep on the shelf, right? Is your church centered on God? Is it orchestrated around his melody? Is every piece of furnishing, everything on the walls, every plan that is made aimed toward the true north of Christ? And the work he has done to reconcile you with the Father are the plans you make, the ministries you found, the teaching that's delivered, I don't know, the snacks you eat over there, all devoted to the mission of obedience to God. You active folks who really understand the ministry of reconciliation laid upon them by God, who through Christ reconciled us to him, how's your work going? Are you making it easier or harder for others to see the gospel's effects on your life? Are you making it easier or harder for the elders to lead you? Again, these are honest questions. I've never met you people before, so I'm just tossing this stuff out there. You seem nice. <sighs> Actually, how about you other folks? Maybe, maybe, you've got, maybe we've got some visitors here. I don't know. I, you could all be you know, charter members for all I know, and you're still in the initial phase, right? You've, you've been out a couple times with Revelation Church, had a nice time, maybe friended her on Facebook, but you're still getting to know her, and that's, that's fine. But if you've 
been here for a while, maybe a long while, and you're content to just kind of show up on Sunday, listen to what is usually like a much better sermon, then give yourself a little smile and say, that was nice, and assume you're good for the week. Can I just say this? And I want to be gentle. Remember the goal of church is to have union with God. Like, that's an active process. It's when you pursue. If you're coming at this with a sort of consumer mentality, and, and, and that's a common approach, to be fair, but I'd suggest perhaps you're actually trying to do church without God because you're trying to do it without submitting to God. You're trying to get the milk for free without buying the cow. Let me tell you, friend, God will not be milked. Practice that line a lot, guys. For all of us, church life with God following Jesus together means submitting to his authority and trusting him to provide us with what we need It means pursuing unity with every other believer, regardless of how irritating we might find them or how offensive their political positions might seem to us. It means thinking of others as more important than yourselves. It means taking your inflated ego and flushing it down the toilet. And when it bobs back up, you get a plunger and you shove that foul thing back down again, lest it overflow and soil your relationships with God and man. It means devoting yourself to drawing near to God in prayer and studying his word as the highest authority over you and to faithfulness and regularly gathering with your local church. Here we are. Because it is in this gathering that you will begin together to build a new enclave amidst the brokenness of a world haunted by the curse. And when you turn on the news, and maybe don't, but if you do, and you see a world that's falling apart, when you mourn the loved ones you have lost, when you discover a new way your body can be injured, Allow yourself to feel the grief, the loss, at the consequences Adam and Eve have unleashed on all of us. But then remember this. In that same chapter of Colossians where we read that all things were created for him, Paul draws our eyes forward to the distant horizon to a time when Jesus reconciles all things, all of this broken creation around us to him where we belong. So yeah, we can't go back. But in Christ, through Christ, for Christ, we have the way forward. Do you have any questions for Zach? (laughs) That was great. We don't have time for questions, unfortunately. Mm. No, I have two questions. They're awesome. Uh, This one is uh, prefaced this way, not to sound like Indiana Jones. So put that hat on. Oh, boy. What is the probability that the tree of life still exists and is still being guarded? Math, probability. All right. Math? Yeah. Okay. Low. (laughs) (laughs) Real low. I, I... I think the tree of life, is that what it says? Yes, that's what it says. Well, I think it must be saved in a pot somewhere for revelation. Yeah, because it's back in the city, right? Yeah, it, it probably. Gets, gets replanted. I feel like maybe the flood would have been kind of hard on it too. That's probably true. We'll get there in a few chapters. That's not a very good answer, but it's all I've got. I think it's a good one. Second question, is the flaming sword mentioned different from the sword of the spirit? Ooh. I think, I mean, the flaming, I think there's a literal sword, probably at Eden. I think the sword of the spirit isn't, is more of a metaphor or a illustration or something. I think. The Bible. They're both kind of, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that. Yeah, that's right. Should have wrote that down. Um, I think, I think they both can kind of represent holiness and the way it separates sin from God. Um, but and I think it's probably just a sword is a really handy metaphor for a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. Including just as a sword that you hit people an, with. An actual they try sword. To get into yeah, that's good. How's it going? Is this is This, this is great. I'm, I'm super excited. We're going to take communion, guys. Um, Dustin has laid out this, this framework. Yeah, you can sit down. Thank you. 
of, uh, just of the curse, of this reality that we live our lives in. And he mapped out the fact that the serpent crusher has come and defeated death and the grave and brought us new life. And every week we remind ourselves of that by taking the bread representing his body broken and the cup, his blood shed on our behalf on the cross in that moment when he took our sin and shame and defeated death and suffering and sin on our behalf. And so we're gonna, I'm gonna ask the band to come back up. We're gonna sing. I would invite you down to the communion table to take the bread and the cup. We have juice and wine per your conscience and take it back to your seat and just meditate on the questions that Dustin raised. Are we as Christian people living our lives with God in the center all the time? And if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you wouldn't identify as a follower of Jesus. What does it mean for you to ask God to be a part of your life, to bring God into your life, to repent of your sin, to turn and follow Christ. Um, so we'll just meditate on those things for a few minutes and the communion table is open um, when you're ready. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.